Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 189, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Will FEMA reimburse schools for PPE? And we have some cool tools for teaching students how to be wary of fake news. Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our guest tells us what role schools can play to help students overcome the disadvantages of poverty. Stay with us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by a friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina... How are you doing? Doing good. Doing good. How about you? I can't complain. You know, um, if things, I don't want to say looking up vaccine wise, it looks like, you know, people are continuing to get the vaccine. Uh, we do have yes. hot spots in the country. I'm staying optimistic. I know that, you know, there's kind of this, this undercurrent of, uh oh, we might see uh, another little spike in numbers and stuff, but I'm going to try to stay positive and, and hope that people are out there getting vaccinated and, and soon we'll be at some type of herd immunity. And hot spots are kind of in the north or big cities? Yeah, it seems that way. I mean, what, around Michigan, it looks like um, maybe New Jersey is one, I guess. Um, I, I've seen mm-hmm. some parts of Florida, it looks like kind of... How are things looking in Texas? They were the first to open wide up. Yeah, when I when I look at Texas, it doesn't seem to be too crazy, except in certain pockets of Texas. So, but I mean, I, I'm not a, a pro at it. I'm just kind of using New York Times yeah. tools and stuff to try to figure out where things are going on. So, but again, keeping optimistic, keeping, just hope the vaccine keeps rolling out and people are or trust in the science, and, and we're going to be all right. Have you heard this? Do you know what we're listening to? Man, that's a happy, happy story right there. It is. You know, it's it's a story about the uh, cafeteria uh, manager, I believe she was, and she mm-hmm. just passed her immigration test, and she's walking the halls of her elementary school, and kids are clapping and chanting USA. Um, I mean, what a lesson for the kids, as well as just a great moment yeah, for her. She persevered. She pushed through. She's uh, attaining her, her, her dream to be an American citizen. And boy, that's just a wonderful story. Yes, it's actually out of um, Edmond, Oklahoma. The lady's name is Yannette Lopez, and she works at Prairie Vale Elementary School in Edmond, Oklahoma. And um, that was um, in early April that that took place. And I just love seeing yeah. that video. Now, e- every time um, it happens once or twice a year, even in like in our small town here in South Mississippi at a federal courthouse, um, you have a group of people that usually go through that naturalization ceremony. And when I was a reporter, I got assigned to that a couple of times. And then when I became news director, it was important for me to, to pass that assignment around to each reporter in the newsroom because I felt like it was such a moving experience to actually go and watch a naturalization ceremony take place in person. Like I, I did not know what I was walking into when I first saw it. And to see this group of people 
of people all over the world, some Hispanic, some from Asian countries, and they're so proud to be there. Um, they've worked hard. They've waited in their turn, and, and here they are becoming U.S. citizens sworn in by a federal judge. It's just really a powerful thing to watch. I bet it is. Um, so well, if, her students were certainly extremely proud. Yeah, no doubt. So I would recommend if anybody out there, like once we get through COVID and they'll, they'll maybe allow people into a courtroom or wherever these may happen, um, if you ever like, you know, look in the paper and say, oh, there's a naturalization ceremony coming up or you you know somebody who's who's getting sworn in, ask if you can go. Like it's it's really, uh, it, it reminds you of, of what an honor it is to be an American citizen. Um, so let's talk about uh, what's going on around the uh, country this week. Uh, first up, uh, we're going to touch on one story that's related to COVID and then one that will not be uh, the one that is related to COVID ties back to FEMA. And there's been some yeah, mixed messages over the past several months or year um, on whether or not FEMA will reimburse schools for COVID-related costs, and mainly PPE is what we're talking about, or and hand sanitizer and all that. You know, everybody mm-hmm. rushed out and bought a bunch of stuff and thought, you know, hopefully somebody's going to help us pay for this on the back end. And um, it turns out that originally um, it looked like FEMA was going to help. So it says the confusion stretches back to last summer when some districts were surprised that their requests for reimbursement from FEMA were rejected. Then in September, FEMA generated controversy when they actually declared that this is an ongoing national emergency, but it was not going to reimburse schools for PPE. Well, then the Biden administration came along and says we are, but apparently there's not a whole lot of like clear guidance of like how that's going to work and how much you'll be reimbursed for. So it sounds like, you know, people, while they're thankful that it sounds like FEMA will help out, they need more information because schools are trying to budget. Um, What are your thoughts? I mean, I guess I think this should be a no brainer, right? I'm a little confused because FEMA put out that they were going to reimburse school districts, but I also thought that when school districts um, received their ESSR funds, that you were able to purchase PPE and items like that. So if we used ESSER funds, why do we need a reimbursement? And just on a larger scale, um, that is not, you know, the PPE is not something that was budgeted for school districts. So that did take a, you know, it did cause a big hit for those that did not wait on their ESSA funds. Mm -hmm. But is anybody going to reimburse all the educators who spent their own private money to purchase, um, you know, things to protect them from COVID in their classrooms, all the sanitizer, the wipes, the spray, um, that's just a bigger question for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that you that's a great point. Like it seems like if if a teacher hung on to any type of receipt, there should be some sort of application they can quickly log in and say, "Hey, please reimburse me for all of this." Like I I would love to see that take place down at at the root me level too. there. Um yeah. it, it, what you were talking about with the Esther funds, that's all included in the story. I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's basically like, yeah, do do we apply through FEMA? Do we get this through Esther? Like how does this work? So it sounds like there's like broad blanket statements like, yeah, we're going to pay for this, but we don't know what that looks like yet. And we hadn't figured out all the details. So it's still pretty That's chaotic. really interesting. But I will tell you the ESSER funds have um, strategic steps that districts had to take. Um, we've got to follow those protocols. And so um, if you purchased your PPE on the front end, I'm not exactly sure of the process for um, reimbursement. But I do know that when you looked at your allotment of ESSER funds, um, you were able to, you know, cover all of the things that you needed to cover right down to technology, um, internet uh, expansion and infrastructure upgrades, all of those things were included. Hmm. Well, that is uh, 
That is certainly one that worth watching. I think most people will agree that there needs to be some sort of reimbursement, whether that comes from Esser, whether that comes from FEMA. And uh, yes. hopefully we'll see all that get straightened out. But I, I, it's got to be tricky. I mean, I guess if you're a district and you're have, trying to plan for next year, and do I need to come up with this money or is are, are well, they going to be about it? This time last year is when we didn't know anything about ESSER funds. We didn't know really exactly what the state of our country was going to be in, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And so districts immediately went out. A lot of districts did. Those that had the cushion, um, that had the funding, went out and purchased a lot of those things. And so, yeah, they definitely need to um, be reimbursed. Yeah, And sooner rather than later. No doubt. I mean, do you still see... um mass usage of hand sanitizer in schools? Or are you seeing that back off? Absolutely. So. Our teachers travel to and from, um, like, for instance, to lunch with their sanitizer. When they take their students to the restroom, mm-hmm. they have their sanitizer. Um, I know that we keep it um, in different locations throughout the building, um, sanitizer stations, and then even myself with my mobile office, and as well as my assistant principals, um, we keep some on our carts. I think that it's still at the forefront of of what you know we're doing every day. On top of the other COVID protocols that we've put in place, you know, I my watch. If you have an Apple Watch, you can turn this feature on. Um, it can track how long you wash your hands. And um, and it actually has a little countdown as you start to wash your hands and it's like 20 seconds, 15 seconds and so forth. And, and then it like, gives you a thumbs up once you do it right. It's not perfect. It doesn't always get it right because I know I'm washing my hands for like 30, 40 seconds and it's like, thinks I still have five more seconds to go because I think it's working mm-hmm. off of audio or something. But either way, I've been having it on for months and then I went and looked in my activity or health data somewhere in my phone and I can see my hand washing trends. And I have to admit Uh, While I said it's not accurate, you do see me washing my hands better a few months ago than I do now. It's hard. We get fatigued. You know, it's like at first I was I was um, over the top probably. And uh, and I've seen me slacking off on my the time I wash my hands a little bit. Um, So I kind of wonder if like that just isn't everybody if we're using hands. We can call it fatigue. But then at the same time, it's in the groove of your day. And we never had to concentrate that hard mm. on, you know, sanitizing and, and social distancing and public hygiene concerns. So I think that it's just, it's easy to slip backwards. And then when you recognize, oh, wait, you know, you pull yourself on back to the front, forefront and try to put those practices back in place. I think right. it happens to everybody. Uh, the other story I wanted to touch on was actually an article in Behavioral Scientist. Um, it's some folks out of the University of Cambridge, and mm. they have a study that they put together um, about how to fight misinformation. Because misinformation, whether it's intentional or unintentional, once it's in the digital wild, it's often difficult to pull it back in. So they're calling this a way that you can inoculate people against online nonsense. And they say you do this by what they call pre-bunking. Basically, you teach kids or even adults how to resist the seduction of falsehoods by playing part in spreading them. So it's almost like you kind of try to trick them a little bit. And they found these three different games online that you can have a child sit in front of and kind of play through. Like, for example, one's called bad news. Okay. So players are exposed to six common misinformation techniques, including emotional buzzwords like horrific and terrifying, all of which kind of people get jazzed up and and start spreading the news. It's designed for educators. So again, I'll put this um, on the show notes, but the website is get bad news. 
com, and you just kind of <laughs> click through. Get and, bad news. Yeah, and I'll, I'll pop it on the screen so you can see it as I'm talking about it. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, is this something that you would expose to students? Like, are, are y'all having conversations about misinformation at, at your level, your age level? Well, absolutely, you're having that kind of conversation because you should already... Um, you know, in, in especially in your uh, English classes is talking about research and what information is, you know, reliable and what's not. But I think that that's really innovative and very different what you just described. Yeah. So there's that one. And then there's another one called Harmony Square. It's produced by the Department of Homeland Security. And it says this game targets election misinformation and puts players in the role of being a bad guy trying to stir up conflict in the community. Um, it says, "It says, quote, there's no better way to inoculate yourself than to walk a mile in the shoes of someone trying to dupe you. Um, and so let me pull this, this one up and we'll take a look. I don't know if we have time to like. So I'm really going to have to check these out and share them with my teachers and, and, and see what their thoughts are, because that. That's hilarious, to be honest. Well, the fact that it's, it's gamified. It's a little too close to reality for me. But I do feel like it's so important, too, to like let kids kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, be aware of this and kind of try to see if they can be tricked or not. And maybe they'll say, okay, well, maybe I'll be more perceptive next time. And I think and that's the whole inoculation thing. stereotypes. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's almost like we, they want to trick you. And then so you're kind of like immune to being tricked in the future, right? What's the old saying? Mm-hmm. What's the one that um, George Bush could never get right? Uh, fool me once. Shame on you. <laughs> fool me twice. Uh, shame on me, I think is the way it goes. But yeah. There's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee. That says, fool me once. Shame on... Shame on you. If fool me, we can't get fooled again. But I remember he used to always stumble across that saying. Um, and he then did. the third one is uh, Go Viral. And it's designed by, looks like... It's designed in the UK. Go Viral focuses on COVID-19 information, addressing uh, fear-mongering, using fake experts, and coming up with uh, conspiracy theories. Um, and it says the games are designed to make people realize how vulnerable they are and to build school and listen, skills. Yeah. All very relevant. Yeah. So um, so again, it's bad news. Harmony Square, Go Viral. We'll put them in the show notes. I, I think it's worth taking a look at, worth playing as an educator, and then saying, hey, is I this something so I put in the classroom or not? You know, Make your own decision from there. Yeah, I'm going to have to check these out immediately. Yeah. So uh, that's it for today so far. Uh, Are you ready for today's Bright Idea? I am. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and he's the former Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Paul Revel also recently co-authored Broader, Bolder, Better, How Schools and Communities Help Overcome the Disadvantages of Poverty. Paul Revel, welcome to Class Dismissed. Nice to be with you, Nick. You and your co-author, Elaine Weiss, uh, you guys open your book, Broader, Better, Bolder, by drawing a picture of the disadvantages of a student living in poverty and and what they face on a daily basis. And we have lots of teachers that listen to this and and they probably live this on a daily basis. But but if you can, for our listeners, can you illustrate the difference of a student that lives in poverty to a student that does not? Well, you know, I had a class that uh, I I once taught at uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And I began um, about 10 years ago with kind of a portrait of my youngest daughter who was entering kindergarten at roughly the same time as I was teaching the class. And I put a picture of her up on the board and I said, you know, I'd like to think that, um, her ultimate success, uh, in school will be determined, you know, by her genetics and superior 
parenting. But let's take a look at some of the advantages that she's had growing up. So we began to make a whole list of, of factors. It started with um, a stable two-parent family uh, with adequate income, with prenatal care, with health care, with uh, stable housing, with full nutrition, um, with um, being read to every night, travel. By the time she entered kindergarten, I think she'd been to, to um, you know, maybe three or four continents and 10 or 12 foreign countries. Um, you know, a very rich, full experience. She was going into an urban public school system. She was sitting side by side with children who'd had none of the above, all the things that I just mentioned. And uh, various traumatic incidents, um, adverse childhood experiences on top of it. So you could make a comparable list for the child she was sitting next to, uh, a low-income youngster, more, more likely than not a student of color, uh, and uh, huge disadvantages. And when they come to school, it's as though, you know, uh, my daughter's coming to school, uh, and if you think of it as a 100-yard dash, she's already on the 50-yard line. Whereas the kid she's sitting next to who's had all the disadvantage uh, is uh, 100, 100 yards behind the starting line. And we fire the starting gun. And when they don't finish at the same time 13 years later at graduation, we act surprised when we don't. At best, we have a, an education system that provides them both the same treatment and the same duration of uh, instruction and opportunity. And it just isn't enough to make up for the profound differences outside of school. And that was it. I think you just said those key words. It's, it's all about what's happening outside of school. It seems like we've been for decades trying to address this issue by, you know, making everything equal inside those walls of the school. But it seems like now there's this push and, and probably what's driving you to, to write this book that's saying we've got to address more than what's happening inside those school walls. Am, am I wrong? No, that's exactly, um, you know, the origin of this book, the origin of our work at the Education Redesign Lab is that we've had basically a 25, 30 year experiment in this country with education reform, with optimizing schools in the spirit of Horace Mann, the founder of the public education, modern public education system in the United States in the late 19th century, who thought that schools would be the great equalizer. And it was a radical idea in his time. <clears throat> Bring everybody into a common school, irrespective of race, religion, gender, uh, socioeconomic background, give them a common treatment, and then you will have created, uh, ipso facto, a uh, meritocracy, and talent and effort would rise to the top. Well, it never worked very well, but it's working even less well than it used to work now. Uh, children, after all, spend only 20% of their waking hours. It's important to, to focus on that. Between the ages of kindergarten and grade 12, they spend 20% of their waking hours <clears throat> in school. The other 80% is outside of school. And we know from research and our own personal experience, people learn as much outside of school as inside of school. And you've got four or five times more time outside of school than in school. So if you only fix the school... And if you treat everybody equally when they're in the school, you're not going to get you're not going to get a closing of the gaps because the access to opportunity outside of school is controlled by your financial and social capital. And we live in a society now, as has been recently demonstrated uh, quite vividly, where, you know, it, th there are huge disparities in wealth, income and opportunity and uh, that favor those who are affluent and, and hugely disadvantage those who aren't. 
Uh, let's talk about solutions. And as I was reading, it looks like, in your opinion, the solution lies not so much with maybe federal authorities, or maybe they don't even have the resources now, but maybe so more so with municipalities and the fabric of the community that makes up those cities. We're very hopeful about <clears throat> something that uh, others uh, have dubbed the new localism, the idea that with all the deep divisions and uh, uh, kind of volatility and, and divisiveness in our national discourse now, that it's folks at the local level who are best suited and have the best track record in sitting down and coming together to uh, to address persistent problems, to check their swords and shields at the door and sit down at a table and uh, and, for example, focus on young people and say, what do we need to do in order to prepare our young people to be successful in this community? Because we know the community's future and the community's prosperity will depend upon our capacity to educate all of our children to a high level. And simply providing them with a school by itself isn't enough to get that job done. So what else do we need to do? So I think we can show the strategies and the ways of accomplishing that at the local level. We won't be able to do it without federal resources and, and state resources coming in because you know wealth is so widely distributed across local communities and so highly variable. And, and you know, right now, given the current budget crises as a result of the problems mm-hmm. we're having in society, the federal government really is in the best position to provide needed aid. Uh, but overall, we're very hopeful about solutions arising at the local level. Uh, can you offer some examples of progress? Where, have you seen these ideas work anywhere? Oh, yeah. We, you know, there are many, many communities which are, are putting these ideas to work. For example, uh, we have here in, in Salem, Massachusetts, they've adopted a program called City Connects, and they have a plan. They've developed an individualized success plan for every child from kindergarten to grade eight. And the teacher um, uh, connects with the, um, the student and with the family. They develop a plan and they track progress against that plan. The adults convene around the plan to provide the supports and services that each child needs. And uh, and that's that's enormously helpful. We've had many of our um, our organizations or ones like uh, the organizations that we work with in our By All Means initiative uh, come together and focus, for example, on the whole family. Um, there's an organization in uh, North Minneapolis uh, that works on, you know, a multi-generational approach. There's an organization called Empath here in, in Boston that does the same thing that says the health and well-being of the child is going to depend directly on the health and well-being of the family. So they concentrate resources and interventions on getting health care, on getting jobs, on getting housing stability uh, for the parents so that the parents can provide a stable household for the children. Uh, we have examples in the book where we've um, you know, had communities come together and say, you know, the number one deficit that we have in our community is a lack of early childhood. So they begin to pour uh, all kinds of local resources and emphasis and advocacy into making uh, early childhood education available. Uh, one community, rural community, actually created an early childhood center on a bus and took the bus out to people in remote communities to provide education services there. We've got lots of examples of faith-based communities bringing together services and supports, everything from nutrition to mental health care available to families. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. People have been doing it for time and memoriam in, in, in American communities. 
but it changes. For example, with the internet, we have examples of in the book where if people have used Facebook and other um, social media platforms to um, to kind of advertise needs that kids in a community have. There was one instance in which a uh, a young man had gotten a very good construction job, but he couldn't take the job literally because he didn't have boots and they required him to have boots. Uh, somebody uh, created a platform in that community, put that need up there. And within two days, sure enough, a woman whose husband had bought a pair of boots but never used them and he'd retired, uh, got the boots, got them to the kid, and he got a job that was a life-changing opportunity for him. Um, so there are all kinds of ways in which our communities you know, come together and figure out, you know, basically what they're trying to design and build is a cradle to career pipeline where you've got the formal school systems, early childhood, K-12 and higher ed, and wrapped around that are systems of support and opportunity. And building out that cradle to career pipeline is what we believe is the solution here, because that's what affluent families do for their children, because they have the resources to do it. But we need public systems that provide those opportunities and that support for all children, since we know that those opportunities and supports are critical to success, which is why more affluent families have higher rates of success with their children, because they're able to provide those supports and opportunities. So if we're really serious about no child left behind or every student succeeds, then we've got to build these cradle to career pipelines in all of our local communities. I think anyone listening to this would uh, say those are phenomenal examples and they would agree wholeheartedly that that is what we need to do. We need to to support not just the student, but the entire family. But you've been at, at the top. I mean, you've been a former secretary. You, you were a former secretary of education for a state. I know you've advised governors. How do you actually do that in practice? That seems so hard and takes more than just a school district leading the charge there. Yeah, this isn't, uh, you know, we've made a big point in the at the Education Redesign Lab in our By All Means initiative of saying this is community business, not school business. Schools should not be responsible, you know, for health care and housing and medical care and mental health care and, and things of that nature. It's incidentally, they, they're winding up doing a lot of that because um, children aren't covered and school people are compassionate people. But in, in an ideal world, the whole community comes together to provide those supports and opportunities for young people. Now, in order to do all those things that are needed for every child, that's a substantial commitment in our society to the development of human capital. And it is true, we can we can pull together as communities and we can make interventions at certain points along that pipeline that I was talking about. But one of our biggest challenges is developing the public will to say we should do for all children what those of us who have privilege do for our own children. And we're not there yet. I, I honestly think this current crisis, which has revealed these inequities so vividly and, mm-hmm. and drawn public consciousness to the kinds of gaps that we are showing that exist in opportunity and support in ways that uh, we were just unable to do before this crisis that we have an opportunity, the window's coming open to make a case for this, but it will take a deeper investment by our society. You know, we tend to have a society which is sort of laissez-faire, Darwinian, everybody for themselves, um, everybody independent, not doing much collectively for one another. And I think we're, you know, as we look around the world and societies that make a deeper investment in human capital, 
um, are better able to weather storms like the ones that we're currently facing. I'll set this up as we're sitting at a time where we can't even get an entire country to wear masks at the same time. How can we all get behind a, a large effort like this? Well, I think we'll only get behind it if we feel that in some way our nation is imperiled. And, uh, you know, I've, I've likened the current crisis to uh, a Sputnik moment. When the Sputnik went up in the late 1950s, the Russians put a satellite into space before the United States and surprised the United States. And we, th- we began to think our whole nation was at risk, our defense, our security was at risk that the Soviet Union had outpaced us in education and technology, and we needed urgently to correct for that. And the federal government got much more deeply involved than it ever had been in public education. I think this is a similar moment. I think this crisis has revealed the deep inequities and the enormous cost to society of, for example, having some people who have health care and others who don't having some people who have jobs that pay them adequately and those who don't. Um, You know, all kinds of inequities are being uh, brought to the surface here. And I think that if we don't attend to those, we're going to be experiencing the economic effects of this in negative ways for a long time to come. So I think there's, again, a moment here, and it's compounded by the growing awareness of how many of these inequities track directly with matters of race in our society. Are you optimistic? I am optimistic. I think we're, I think we're you know, we're not going to get all the way to where I'm, I'm suggesting we go idealistically, but I think we're going to make some substantial progress here. You dedicate a whole chapter on empowering mayors. Like, how do you get at the local level, your city leadership to get on board with an idea like this? Well, we've We've gone looking for mayors who share our point of view, and we didn't find it very hard to find them. You know, mayors around the country realize that the future of their community depends on the young people. The quality of life in their community depends on whether or not families feel it's a good place to raise children. The quality of life and the prosperity of the economy depends on are there young people who have the skills and knowledge to do 21st century jobs? So most mayors sense this is critically important to the future of our society that we do a better job than we have been doing at educating our young people to be citizens and workers in the 21st century. And that schools alone, frankly, haven't been strong enough to get the job done because it's just 20% of their waking hours. So the whole community's got to get engaged. And I we see an awful lot of mayors who have the foresight and belief that uh, they want to commit some of their political and financial capital to making that happen. We often look at these inequities as being a, an urban and a suburban thing, but we're actually located, this podcast originates out of Mississippi, where you have a lot of rural areas, um, and, and there aren't even mayors in some of these areas. But what the, the COVID crisis has really exposed is things like, you know, no high-speed internet access in places. And, and how do you kind of raise the bar in these rural spots around the country? Well, it, it's a different form of collaboration. And and uh, I will say for a long time, so much of our education reform work took for granted and focused on <clears throat> the urban context, as though all poverty is concentrated in, in urban areas and all students are either suburban or urban. 
And 20% of our population lives in rural communities across the United States. And that population justifiably feels neglected and overlooked in a lot of what we talk about in these circles. So um, we're working hard at, at Harvard to try and understand better the realities of, uh, of rural communities and what they're up against. We do some work. One of our laboratories is in Southern Illinois, where we work you know, across re- a regional level. So you get multiple mayors together, you get county government involved in it. The problem, many of the problems are the same problems. People who don't have access to adequate health care, they don't have stable employment, they don't have, um, you know, they don't have stable housing to go along with it. Uh, that school alone is too weak an intervention. Uh, and particularly when school is interrupted like the way it is now, people are uh, in, in rural areas even more isolated and alienated than in many of our urban areas. But the basic principles of the work of, of this is a collaborative enterprise. Community leaders, grass tops and grassroots leaders need to come together and devise solutions and communicate more effectively. Uh, local leaders need to become an advocacy force at the state level and at the national level for getting the resources out to rural communities like the internet. I think that's one of the things in this current crisis that's become now obvious to everyone that in order to get educated, you're going to need, every family's going to need access to the internet. So that's no longer a nice to have, but it's an essential in education. And now we're starting to see that fold into budgets all across the country in this budget season, even though there are significant budget challenges. Uh, again, the uh, book is titled Broader, Bolder, Better, How Schools and Communities Help Students Overcome the Disadvantages of Poverty. Um, this It's a phenomenal book. I mean, I have an advanced copy here. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm going to share it with my co-host, who is a principal. And uh, she she's very much in line with everything that you're saying. And, and I just love that you have it all in one place. Well, we're trying to take a broader look at what it's going to take to realize our aspirations. You know, it's easy to it's easy to say things like no child left behind and every student succeeds, but we really want to come to the practical level at which many of your listeners live and work, which is what do I do Monday morning if I want to make this happen? And we're saying, you know, we've asked an awful lot of educators over recent years. Now our whole communities need to get involved because it takes a whole community to provide the, the opportunities and the supports that make it possible for children to go to school every day and be ready to learn. And uh, so figuring out how we do that collectively, uh, I think, is the work of the future. And I'm very hopeful about that. Work. If, if someone wants to get their hands on the book, what's the best way to go about doing that? Um, Harvard Education Publishing is the uh, is the publisher. So just going directly to Harvard Education Press would be the way to go. Yeah, and that's uh, harvardeducationpress.org if anybody wants to look that way. Um, Paul Revel, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Are you ready for our pop quiz? I am, Nick. All right. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? I guess I'd, I'm an English major, so I'm a little biased, but I think being able to um, to read, write, and communicate persuasively is hugely important in our society. So I would say language is the place that I would start if you had to narrow it down to one. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Well, uh, financial literacy is an obvious topic. I mean, too many students come up uh, through school not knowing nearly enough 
about personal finance, about how bank accounts work, about how credit cards work, about how student debt and student loans work. Uh, so we should be doing much more in that area. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves a, an, a fair opportunity to realize their full potential. So they deserve an education in core subjects and in 21st century skills and social and emotional learning that make it possible to have not only the cognitive skill they need, but also the interpersonal skills, the uh, executive functioning kinds of skills that make it possible for them to be prepared to do 21st century work in a high-skill, high-knowledge economy, to be citizens and leaders in a democracy, to be heads of families, and to be lifelong learners and fulfilled individuals. So they need to be prepared for success, and they need to be prepared to be adaptable, because as educators, we can't possibly even figure out the challenges they'll be facing 10 years from now, let alone you know 30 or 40 years down the road. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Well, if you talk to educators, for many of them, it's time. We, we have huge aspirations for what we want schools to accomplish, and yet we've underfunded them, and we, we haven't even given them a sufficient amount of time to do all the things that we want them to do. And so uh, providing more time, more services, breaking out of the limitations of place and the old agrarian calendar we have, to uh, take into account the individual needs of students and how we come together to meet those needs. I think that's the biggest challenge. Educators need help. The, um, we've got to be at the end of the era where we, we as a society say, you know, education is going to be our shortcut to an equal opportunity society. We'll invest a modest amount of time and money in education and expect them to work miracles. Uh, if we want to have high aspirations for all children, which for moral and economic reasons we should, um, then we're going to have to uh, invest in it as, as whole communities. What's the best gift to give an educator? Uh, you know, the best gift is a is sort of a package that includes uh, time, that includes a decent salary, and that includes respect and high quality professional development to enable uh, educators to adapt uh, to the changes in our society. For example, all the changes that have been involved in, in, in taking education onto the internet in recent months. Which teacher changed your life? Well, the teachers that changed my life, and I can think of two in particular, were teachers who shared their joy in learning with me. Their joy became contagious. Their enthusiasm for uh, whatever subject we were looking at, for reading and writing in my case, uh, was so infectious, was so accessible to me that it made me excited about the things that excited them. So giving that gift of kind of enthusiasm, of um, excitement, of imagination that goes along uh, with, a, with a faculty member who is just um, pumped up and, and deeply into his or her subject, I think it makes a huge difference for children. And last question, do you prefer pen or pencil? Pen. All right. Again, Paul Revel, we appreciate your time. If somebody likes to keep up with you on social media, is there a certain place you like to hang out? Are you a Twitter or Instagram guy? Um, yeah, I'm Paul Revel at, at, on Twitter. I, I'm not very good at all that. I'm, I'm old-fashioned and, and do a lot of email. And our edredesign.org is the best way to follow what I'm up to. So it's edredesign.org. 
Yeah, and so if anybody's curious, though, if they do hop on Twitter, your last name is spelled R-E-V-I-L-L-E. So it's at Paul Revel. And then um, the handle looks like for Ed Redesign on Twitter is um, at Ed Redesign Lab. Um, Again, we appreciate your time. It's a phenomenal book, and we enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks so much, Nick, for your good questions. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.